This is Geek Gab with your hosts, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back, Geek Gab, for Saturday, August 20th, 2022. Dornall, how was your week? Hey, man. My week's good, but can I just say, insurance companies suck. I have heard that from a lot of people. I don't know if I mentioned it on the show. I got some water damage at the house, trying to get that fixed uh, between the insurance company not returning calls and the heat wave work hasn't even been started yet. So uh, also they're probably not going to give me nearly as much money as uh, I thought. So it definitely pays to have homeowners insurance, but and they really make you work for it. Which is funny because I thought I already paid for it. You know, I have very often found two things are true. It's really easy for people to promise you money and really hard for them to actually pay you that money. And uh, I found that by working freelance as a writer. Um. Uh, that came from a newspaper I was working for uh, um, over 20 years ago. Uh, and it's also really easy for people you've paid money to who owe you money. And this is insurance related. It's really easy to pay them money, but really hard to get them to pay you money. Uh, it's always, always hard to get money moving in your direction. Crazy. War pigs rules for life. Always um, hard to get money moving in your direction. That would be a great name for your Substack. <laughs> War pigs rules for life. War pigs rules for life. Uh, I mean, even Peter Jackson, right? Peter Jackson, who uh, shot, directed the uh, three Lord of the Rings films that made insane amounts of money. For New Line Cinema, even he had to go to court and sue the company to get them to pay him what they owed. Wow. That's how hard it is to get money moving in your direction. Is it any wonder that the love of money is the root of all evil? Yeah. It really is. People will do all kinds of nasty things just to get. Oh, who was it I read yesterday? Somebody's sons are suing him. It's a big what? creative. Uh, somebody who created, you know, like a writer or a comic book artist or a role playing game designer or something. And his sons who had nothing to do with creating anything are suing him. Well, I can't be the role-playing game designer because they don't make any money. Because they're all broke. Okay. Fair point. Um, I wish I could remember that. If I'd known we were going this direction, I might have pulled that up before the show. But, yeah. It's just it's always a surprise. Yeah. No, uh, other than that, life is good. Um, family, job, home. Everything's nice. Uh, I even... Uh, I'm continuing playing the Trollopolis game. It was really great to join those guys. It definitely scratches that 
tabletop RPG itch in the worst possible way. Uh, even with the, uh, I mean, you know me, I'm going to complain. Like even, even with the best crew of guys around, playing online is still a pale, pale imitation of proper in-person play. Uh, this is true. This is absolutely uh, not a lie. I don't have uh, I don't have much else to say about that. That wouldn't just be grousing, but uh, hey, it's fun, especially when. Uh, okay, I do want to talk about something you know that I've experienced that we've talked about before. You know, people have been talking about this for for years and years and years. But it's the whole mixed level uh, party in a role playing game. You know why? Uh, the idea that a low-level character would be worthless um, adventuring with a higher-level character. So in this case, we've got a few mid-level characters in the past couple of games that have sort of carried the game. Um, uh, I've got I've got two responses from that based on my experience. Right. First of all, in a in a normal in a sandbox-style game with large parties, such as a, an old school, an OSR game or a bro OSR game or whatever, um, the level difference doesn't mean so much uh, because you can't actually predict what level of monsters or challenges you're going to face. Um, caveat, in a, in a mega dungeon, it's generally, you know, one hit dice per level deep. Uh, the other thing is, is that since the challenges are great and varied and not just, you know, challenge rating uh, combats, the characters are able to contribute in other ways. Um, for example, I've played a completely useless character um, uh, in this week's game uh, because he was low level and the skills he brought ended up not applying to the situation as well as we thought they would. But I was playing nonetheless and was able to you know, move forward move the game forward by taking some actions. We, we found a dungeon entrance closed up and I was able to locate a um, an alternate entrance. Great, that didn't take any special character skills or anything like that. And the other thing is, okay, so you're in a mixed, you're in a mixed uh, character party and so some of the mechanical and technical challenges are gonna be overcome by your stronger characters. But that means at the end of the game, and I've experienced this three sessions in a row, a level one character getting a, a payday that a level five character can provide is massive. Absolutely massive. Uh, and this will be, if, if it works out, this will be the third character in a row that I've immediately gone to level up once or twice after the first game. After, after at which point naturally I'll be broke and I'll need to adventure more. But I don't know anybody who worries about. Oh, it, there's no there's no sense in mixing character levels. Nope. Just start at level one. Have the other characters carry you for a minute. You'll still have fun. That was my rant. And you will level up quickly because it turns out roughly. This isn't, you know, mathematically exact, but it's kind of rough that the amount of experience you need to catch up to them is about what they need to get to the next level. 
uh, if they're mid-level and you're low-level, let, let's say around five and you're one, it tends to be about what you need to get to fourth level is what they will need to get to sixth level. That's about how much it is. Um, so, yeah, you can get caught up real fast while they're still trying to get to sixth, and that's okay. You know, you can get carried along really easily. And it really is, the difference in AD&D really is um, good play, not the stats and uh, special abilities. Um, if you are looking for opportunities to do things, then you can do stuff that don't require you to be high level. Uh, like you said, with the with the alternate entrance, you just went scouting around the hill, which it turns out none of us had ever done before because we had the nice big route right into the cave and we'd been going back and forth and gotten in there until all of a sudden the cave was blocked up and we couldn't get in. So you scattered us another route into the cave so we could go into the cave. Um, and because of that, we could go in and finish, actually finish uh, this werewolf who we'd been hunting for a long time. <laughs> um, or rather ignoring for a long time and kind of desultorily hunting whenever we it occurred to us that we probably should. Uh, and then that was all just good play. Um, and I, I had done things like that in the campaign. And other players have done things like that in the campaign a lot. Um, so, yeah, it's just... Good play matters more in many cases than what you've got available to you. Although really, and this is the lesson I learned, you know, here's another war pig rule for life. Wizards have this reputation of being blasters. Like you get combat spells and use them, and that's great. Worst way to play a wizard. Yeah. Wizard combat spells are almost useless in a dungeoneering sense. Uh, although they're great if you get the right spells, absolutely great in battles. You want to have combat spells for your wizard to be able to use them uh, in mass combat because they will clean the house in mass combat. Um, but your wizard can do so much more with being a support character. People say, oh yeah, clerics are support. I'm, no, I'm telling you, and I'm not comparing this to clerics and saying wizards are better than clerics. I'm just saying, at least my character, who's a Wujin, he's a wandering mendicant, Wujin, uh, he has so many great spells that as a uh, support character, he is phenomenal. I've got a spell called Strength, and I don't know how it compares to wizard spells or whatever, because it's from Oriental Adventures. But for fighter class characters, I get a roll of D8, and 
it adds one point to strength. And then when you hit 18, each point adds plus 10% extraordinary strength. So, you know, if you're at strength 1850 already, I can bump you up to strength 1800 with just a roll of five. Just like that. And then it lasts at my level for five hours. Five hours. I love that. It's awesome. And that's just one spell that you can use to, to boost a party member, make your fighter incredibly effective. So, yeah, look at all the spells your wizard has access to and don't think about direct damage blasting spells. Look at all the spells you can think of in creative ways to use them. Hypnotic pattern, most useful spell ever. It just, uh, if your enemy fails their save versus spells, they just stand there while your party comes up and kills them. Um, and, and seasoned players have known this forever. We're, we're not talking about anything new. Uh, the uh, In fact, in I think in third edition, or Pathfinder talks, uh, the archetype uh, is called the Batman wizard, where you just have a utility belt because the point of these spells is to solve a specific problem. And when you're playing new school D and D, that specific problem is often a horde of orcs. And when your problem's a horde of orcs, fireball's a good solution. But it doesn't solve most problems that you're going to find in an adventure. And com contrast it with the other third level spell, talking about third level spell specifically, which is a huge power spike, right? Because of fireball. Yeah, fireball's great when you're dealing with 100 goblins, but you know what spell actually changes the game? Fly, right? Just think about that. Think of all the problems it solves. Same thing, you know, comprehend languages kind of a weak spell but the problem it solves when you need to solve it you ask the whole party hey does anybody know how to read this language no 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 well guess what i do it's it, the wizard is a has a list of specific problems to specific solutions and a good player is going to be able to use those uh to solve many different solutions yeah it's it's so really with wizards, their strength is, is thinking laterally. Once again, it's not just how good the spells are. It's how creatively you can apply them. It's all the way down to uh, player ingenuity and being uh, choosing a spells that will help you in combat to blast away is not the way to go. You want to choose the force multiplier spells where you can make everybody else's attacks and everybody else's um, moves and stuff more, make them more effective. Because, man, when your party gets boosted by what you're doing as a wizard, uh, things go way, 
way off the charts and your party becomes so much more effective. Um, and in AD&D, it's not, oh, I want my chance to shine as a, as a combat master and show everybody how well I can kill people. It's, it really is, in order to be successful against the enemies you fight, it really is, okay, here's my bit to make the party better. Um, and so now the, the party can go out and crush enemies while, uh, while I'm, you know, hypnotic patterning and literally not doing anything else for the rest of the combat. I'm just standing there, you know, I'm, I'm checking Twitter or something because I'm hypnotically patterning like eight extra fighters to keep them off the back of everybody else. And I'm doing nothing, but I'm doing something. My character is doing something that keeps the combat from going south. So I'm actually doing, my character's actually doing something critical. Um, but my player doesn't have to be the one that the spotlight, my character doesn't have to be the one that the spotlight's shining on. So yeah, pick up those things that are going to be great in, in amplifying the power of everybody else or supporting everybody else. And uh, they become so effective. It's just, it's insane. And this is what I've learned by playing in the Teropolis campaign is, hey, here's a spell that is insanely useful. So, yeah, look to multiply. Don't look to uh, aggrandize yourself. War pigs rules for life. Mm -hmm. Player skills more important than character skill. Player skills more important than character abilities. Yep. Because player skill, not only what you do in the game, but also choosing what you have to be to like maximizing your uh, options. Um, to what's available for you. Yeah. It's really, really good. Also, the the rule of uh, inches inside and inches outside means that usually a lot of your spells are going to be crazy good in mass combat. Uh, I love mm -hmm. AD&D for that. Because Birthright had to invent an entirely new magic system to even get kind of sort of in this similar direction um but didn't even get there they could, i i think they took that rule out for second edition entirely yeah yeah they in second edition they just went with discrete measurements i don't that, think they 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 deliberately discarded the um mass combat game uh, i think there may have been good reasons for that but Uh, I'm not sure the execution was right, and it certainly led to the sort of new D&D style game that we have today. Being able, as a first-level wizard character, excuse me, first-level magic user, I've been using the wrong term, apologies, as a first-level magic user to use a first-level spell, outside in a mass combat to wreak mass damage. And trust me, under the rules in AD&D, first edition, that is how it works. The spells that are pretty decent inside the dungeon 
when you get them outside facing, you know, an army of 200 goblins or 200 orcs or whatever, you can just hurl spells because they have so much bigger area of effect because inches inside versus inches outside have two different scales, especially if you're going, you're using 10 to one figures. Um, they are built for mass combat and it is awesome that as a first level character you have the power to affect whole battles mm. you are not a wimp you are not a wuss you are not useless you can literally change the course of history in your campaign because you have in your pocket even if just one spell that you can only cast once, you have in your pocket um, access to spells that can wreak damage on dozens of enemies. And I mean, that's just so cool just to think about. First level magic user can change the entire course of a battle in so many ways. Even if it's not a direct damage spell. So hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a call out to the chat. Um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna link everything Bradford's saying. Bradford Walker has been studying AD and D and the domain game and stuff. So I just wanted to shout out to him and uh, and and plug his blog if you don't mind. Go for it. Yeah. Um, let's see. BradfordCWalker.blogspot.com, and and this isn't entirely not self-serving because you know, he's a. I'm gonna I'm gonna share a screen for people who are hanging out on uh, YouTube. Listening on YouTube. Yep. Whether you're listening live or listening later. Uh, I hope you can see it. Maybe not. My screen shows black. BradfordCWalker.blogspot.com. Uh, he's going over. He's doing his own sort of following along with AD&D the same way that I did, the same way that Jeffro did, and everything like that. Um, plus, he's got his own historical perspective on it. Um, you know, as he says in the, in the chat, we'd not hurt to get up to speed on real-world history, military and otherwise. Uh, sounds like something that could help your game. Reading how the great men of history played the domain game is very instructive on how to dominate play. Uh, yeah, if you're if you're uh, interested in doing like a diplomacy or a, you know, war gaming that sort of thing, definitely study your history. And uh, I I recommend this uh, I recommend this blog. I'm going to try to get a better screen share for YouTube, but uh, good stuff. And it's it's good to see you in the chat, Bradford. Thanks. So. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's all our AD and D talk for today because we got some other stuff to talk about. But yeah, it's, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff in first edition AD and D that they just either accidentally because they didn't understand it, uh, or deliberately for maybe what seemed like good reasons, uh, took out that really, really should never have been taken out. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, 
So what's on your plate, DW? Well, um, I cut a sale. Um, I watched the Sandman series on Netflix. Um, and I found, uh, uh, I found, I read the Sandman comic book series, and I'll, I'll describe this later for those of you, in just a minute, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. I read the Sandman comic book series, and so I was reading that first, and then I watched the Netflix series. So, way back in the day of the 1980s, Neil Gaiman wanted to work for DC Comics writing a on a horror series called Constantine. Um, John Constantine is a person who deals with uh, all kinds of things of the darkness. Um, and it's a horror series. Uh, demons and monsters and ghost hauntings. And it's a really... It's a really compelling and, and dark series, and I don't know if I've talked about it before, but I've read all the classic Constantines and all the new Constantines. And, Hellblazer, and, right? What? Hellblazer. Hellblazer. Yes. Um, all the new Constantines since then, because uh, they've had multiple series since then, have really been, uh, really been a letdown. And they're garbage. I hate saying that, but they are garbage. There's like 300 issues of this. But he, uh, for various reasons, he couldn't do it. So they asked him what he wanted to do. So he wanted to do this series called Sandman, uh, which he created and is all is, is very, very Neil Gaiman-ish. Um, and Sandman himself, the character, is part of a group of beings called the Endless. And the Endless are anthropomorphic representations of certain uh, forces or concepts. So Sandman himself is dream. His older sister is death. There's also destiny, desire. There's seven of these guys. Um, despair. So that's the five you know of at this point in the in the series and the comic books when the miniseries stops. Um, and Sandman gets captured in the very first issue by a mortal wizard who was actually seeking to capture death, that he might bargain with death for her release for power and immortality. Hmm. And, and, you know, fame and wealth and all the typical things. But instead of capturing death, he captures Dream. 
A dream is immortal, an immortal, which is why they're called endless. So they live forever. And he keeps dream locked up for, uh, in the comic, almost a century, because the comic is set in the 80s. In the TV show, they've set it in the modern day, in, you know, 2022. So it's uh, a century in the modern, in, in the TV show. And Dream never gives him so much as a word. He never even talks to him. And he begs him and begs him and begs him. And the magician ends up dying. So eventually Dream escapes. And this is all in the first issue of the comic. Um, wreaks this havoc. And goes back to his realm called the Dreaming, which is where mortals go to when they fall asleep and dream. And things have fallen apart, and his tools have been stolen, and uh, the dreams of mortals have been, uh, you know, really, really fallen apart. They're darker. They're um, they are far more. Uh, colder and human beings have become grimmer and colder and he has to put everything back together and retrieve his tools uh one of which has ended up with a demon lord in hell one of which has been taken by a madman um one of which has ended up with john constantine who i talked about just a second ago and then restore the dreaming to what it was supposed to be and bring people out of their comas that they've been in for most of their lives and so on and so forth. And so the series is about him facing the comic book series is about him facing a bunch of challenges to his authority, him trying to retrieve all these items, fix the dreaming get a bunch of nightmares who've escaped from his realm into the real world. And generally, a lot of things get done, and it turns out that there's there's this vast overplot and story to where everything that happens fits into this plan that Dream is enacting, and you don't see the whole pattern of it until the end of the series. Um, so. Like, is this one of those things where he intended to be captured for a century or something? No. Okay. Uh, he didn't intend to, but the psychological effects of being captured uh, caused him to enact this vast plan. I see. Um, the series is, uh, schizophrenic, the comic series, because a lot of it is this elegiac dream world and, you know, kind of really beautiful things, but a lot of it is just really grim and nasty horror. Which is fine for horror. Nasty horror is 
you know, that's part of horror. Um, it, depending on what your tolerance for horror is, um, horrific concepts uh, and terrible things happening to innocent people, you may find it goes too far. You may not. I'm not. Uh, most average people, I would suspect, find it goes too far, and they definitely tamed it down for the Netflix series. Um, but it... So the Netflix series, does it roughly follow the first comic series? It roughly follows the first... No... Let me get to that. The The comic series turns out, at least up to a certain point, to be kind of, kind of a nihilistic ending. Um, I guess I should wait till the end of, end of the show to talk about spoilers, but... Well, okay, that's fine. You can do that. I'm just trying to... Uh, I've never read the comic series, so I'm sort of trying to get... Uh, mental picture of of what this is. So it's so it, let let's the, talk the, about the TV series then. Okay. Okay. Um, the TV series has a lot of characters that are named the same as the comic characters. If you've read the comics and you like the characters from the comics, and a lot of the characters from the comics are really cool, and uh, they're very interesting to watch in the TV series because they're very similar to the characters in the comics. Uh, the Corinthian is there and he does a, a really good job. Um, but they are changed. And I suspect it's because of British law. Britain passed a law saying you have to have so many characters of various minorities in the show. And so the fates have been changed to be all um, Pakistani, I think. Um, they're British, but they're Pakistani characters. Death, who is this goth chick, um, is of... Uh, you know, Caribbean extraction. Okay. Um, just vast swaths of the characters have, even when it makes no sense, have been changed to be uh, uh, black instead of white. I am just Weird. telling you what's in the show. Like, part of the show takes place in 1500-something, and one of the serving girls is is black, uh, and it just does just not an make, anachronism. Yeah, it does not make sense in England of that time. I mean, in in twenty twenty two England, there are three guys playing uh, football, which is to say soccer, and a character who was blonde and white in the comic um, is black, and it's like okay, that that's fine, that you know. Sure. That's it's it, it's a, not an anachronism. It's it's 
in a lot of cases that's just a cosmetic change but yeah that's not, the not in, the, in the 1500s it seems a little out of place doesn't it yeah um so yeah that's like vast vast swabs of of characters are just changed for again maybe it was Maybe it was this British law, although, you know, sometimes uh, some of the interviews Neil Gaiman gave said, you know, oh, we decided right away. Like Lucian, uh, who is a male, who is death's right, or not death's, dream's right-hand man in the comic, um, you know, just changed into a black woman. Uh for no readily apparent reason, it doesn't bring anything extra to the character. It just is. Um, Lucifer Morningstar, who's basically this model, and I mean model, like in the sense of beautiful, you know, extremely gorgeous man with a, a curly blonde hair, uh, is played by Gwendolyn Christie. Um from the Game of Thrones and uh, the two uh, Disney Star Wars films. Um, she's a big, you know, strong-looking, very mannish woman. And that really does matter for, for Lucifer's character, who he is. He stands out uh, among the triumvirate of, of hell. And the worst absolute worst change of all is they have John Constantine whose masculinity is part and parcel of it, it is intrinsic to him and to so many things the character has done he looks like Billy Idol that's who he's supposed to look like that is who he's always looked like and in the show, they've replaced him with a black-haired woman. Huh? Same character, same background. Her name is Johanna Constantine. And it's not like his daughter. It's just John Constantine. I would have been fine because it's set 40 years later. It's not set in the 80s, which is when John Constantine existed. It's set 40 years later. If they had said this is John Constantine's daughter and she inherited this stuff from her dad and given her a different horrific background to have nightmares over and whatever, that would have been cool. I would have liked to have seen what they did with John Constantine's daughter. But no, they just made John Constantine. And, and let me let me just start with a little list. In the Swamp Thing comic, John Constantine allows Swamp Thing to uh, take over his body so the Swamp Thing can spend time with his wife one last time. So he can know what that feels like to hold his wife and stuff one last time. John being male matters. Um, 
at another point in time, John fathers a child with a woman, and the child goes up, grows up to have cosmic powers and in, uh, in consequences for the entire DC universe. John, being male, is intrinsic to his character. And at another time, um, he is forced to uh, seduce someone by a demon. And because he has demon blood in him, and this is how, you know, this is who John Constantine is. This is why I hate the new John Constantine comics, because they make him out to be this kind of disreputable guy. And it's like, no, John Constantine's actually a really nasty fella. Um, because of his demon blood, he kind of taints this woman. And according to the comics, she's supposed to give birth to the new Messiah, but she can't because of his demon blood. But him being male matters. It's intrinsic to his character. It's not just some random choice they made. It matters again and again and again and again and again. For everything he is, for everything he does. And they just wipe it all away by making this female John Constantine who has nothing other than being everything John Constantine is, is nothing John Constantine. And they give her all of the negative traits of John Constantine. He's kind of a jackal, you know? He's rude to people. He's a user. You'd hate him. You'd hate the comics. You wouldn't ever be able to read the comics. Um, but all that stuff comes from him hating himself because of mistakes he's made and people who suffered for it that weren't him. And so they take his abrasive personality and his chain smoking and his heavy drinking and his series of relationships and the people who get hurt because of him, not even on purpose, it's just, you know, he's in deeply involved in fighting these dark monsters. And so the people around him tend to get hurt. And it's not even his fault, but he carries this big load of weight. And they dump it all into this girl. And she used to be one of the companions of the new Doctor Who. The new Doctor Who. I think her name is Jenna Coleman. Uh, I'm sure chat can correct me. And a woman just doesn't work as a clone of John Constantine. It reads entirely different when you have, you know, really, really attractive woman being all of these things that are acceptable in an unpleasant man. It just doesn't work. So if they were going to make this a female who was a Constantine, they should have made her... If they're going to make her a new character, they should have made her a new character and just gone all the way. Mm -hmm. um, so, as, as far as the Sandman story goes, does it matter? Just plain devil's advocate. 
Um, would it matter to a new viewer who didn't know anything about uh, the comics? People who are brand new who don't know anything about the comics wouldn't necessarily know anything is wrong other than it would be a bit jarring. She's not feminine. Other than the fact that it's a very feminine woman playing with very masculine traits, and that's really mentally jarring. You would notice there's something kind of wrong there. Um, because she, Jenna Coleman, the actress, is really feminine. Her gestures, her voice, her physical mannerisms, she's a very feminine person. Um, and she's, but she's playing with severely masculine dialogue and character traits, and that's really jarring. So, yeah, that, that comes across as a little weird. But no, if you didn't know anything about the comics, the fact that this isn't John Constantine, you wouldn't know it. Um, so the, there is some weirdness in the plot because they don't follow the plot of the comics. They're trying to make it into a series. So a lot of these things were siloed, right? You would have, here's one story. It goes from top to bottom. And sometimes it would be, it would go back and say, oh, in this series of events that you knew had already happened because we've covered them previously, Here's some extra bits about stuff that were happening at the same time or happened, you know, in the nooks and crannies of those events that we hadn't told you about because it wasn't important to those stories. But it's one issue or six issues or something where these little things happened or, or it explains something that maybe you didn't realize why that had happened, but they're all siloed off to themselves. That happens a lot in Sandman. And it actually makes for really interesting uh, and good storytelling. Uh, Neil Gaiman is a great storyteller. He just is a really good writer and a great storyteller. Um, the difficulties with Neil Gaiman's storytelling are not because he's a bad writer or not because he's a bad storyteller. It's because he carries a lot of modern uh, personality traits and beliefs uh, along with him. So if you go back and look at um, what they did for the series is, in many cases in the episodes, they tried to unspool siloed stories and weave them in to the whole series. But that great gave a much greater weight to those characters and the ending of that was anticlimactic. So let me tell you about the Corinthian. The Corinthian is a nightmare. He's meant to stay in the dreaming. And when people dream, he's sort of the epitome of the modern world. And he's meant to be terror of the modern world so that, People, when they experience this terror, 
sort of move away from some of the ill things in modernity and move back towards some of the good things about tradition. Um, so he's meant to be scary. He's meant to be terrifying. He's horrifying. But what happened is when Dream, when the Sandman lost his grip on the Dreaming, um, and actually a little bit before then, uh, a little bit before then, he escaped into the real world and started serial killing. Hmm. And Dream went to him and was going to capture him and return him to the Dreaming. But in the middle of doing this, and I'm describing the plot of the TV show here. In the middle of doing this, he was captured by this wizard and whisked away to this trap. And in so doing, the Corinthian got to be wandering as a serial killer in the modern world, wherever he wanted to go for the next century. Um, and so he's far exceeding his power. And then in the comic, he shows up in a six-issue arc where his story is kind of explained. And Dream comes up and... Uh, I guess spoilers... The ending where he confronts Dream in the comic is very anti, is very appropriate because you've only seen him for six issues out of what is like an 80 or 100 issue run, right? So he, he's just one story out of all of these other stories. It doesn't seem like his end at the end of that six issue arc is disproportionate to his importance but in the series he appears in the very first episode we see him you know be behind several machinations that keep dream imprisoned um and then he shows up and interacts with other people later and then uh, he has a big part in, in moving several important characters around the board. And then, um, you know, he's part of a plot to uh, maybe even possibly destroy Dream himself and take over the Dreaming. And when you come to that same end that's in the comics... It's really anticlimactic. His end is just not big enough to justify his role being an omnipresent, uh, an omnipresent presence in the entire series. It just feels wonky. So if they're going to rewrite and add a bunch of stuff to the Corinthian, they needed to give him an ending that was commensurate with his vastly increased role in the series. They need to make him big 
as big going out as he was in the rest of the series. And they didn't do that. And there are various other little baubles and weirdnesses that came in. So you asked if, did they at least roughly follow the comics? And the answer is, in a few ways they did. Some things are close, but not exact. Um, but a lot of it is just not. And a lot of it is just made up out of whole cloth. Um, and Neil Gaiman did it better in the comics. Um, and of the major named characters who have an impact on events in the comics, about half of them are sex or race swapped. I'm just observing that because if you're a fan of the comics and you like the comics and you wanted to know what happens, um, that's just the facts. However, the question is, is this a good series or is this Cowboy Bebop, which was just garbage, reprehensible pile of trash that should be burned. It's absolute. Oh. <laughs> you did that to yourself, man. I didn't say Cowboy Bebop. You did. Hey, remember Cowboy Bebop, the Netflix adaptation? Oh. Um, this is, I would give it a, an 8 out of 10. If you get Cowboy Bebop? No. So you really liked it. This doesn't sound like you did. I didn't like all the changes they made from the comic. I really, really didn't like all the changes they made from the comic, especially when it uh especially when it resulted in wonkiness. Um and remember. I had read the comic immediately prior to starting the series, and a couple of the things they put in the series had gotten past my reading, and so I, I went back and read those, uh, some of it during the series and some of it right after. So I was writing the com I was, you know, writing, not writing, writing the comic at the same time. So I was, you know, in comparison with it immediately there, so the uh, differences were bright fresh in my head um it is well done the acting is good um they tune they tuned down a lot of the horror there is typical wokeness implicit in the material but some of that was present in the original comic series anyway. Um, and it wasn't strengthened or magnified for the sake of, of modern narrative or issue or message. 
Um, and it was fun. They did a really good job with the elegaic wonder of the dream world. One of the characters, uh, her name is Barbie. Her dreaming, her nighttime dreams are of this quest in a fantasy world where she's a, a princess and she's accompanied by these fantasy creatures and she's off to stop. It's it's very much an Oz-ish thing, Oz, the Wizard of Oz sort of thing. Um, only everything's changed to not be the Wizard of Oz. Uh, but it's very delightful in the comic and they did such a good job of making it delightful in the TV series. Um, they just did a really good job of a lot of things uh, in certain details that showed up. Um, the interaction of death with the people that uh, she's come to take to the other side, uh, they did really, really well. Um, the soccer player I mentioned, he does a great job of being that character. Um, I mean, it is a really well done series. Differences from the comic noted that aggravated me to hell, especially John Constantine. Um, they do a good job. And The Witcher's differences were really aggravating and lessened the show. These differences are there and lessen it by comparison to the comic and made some things not quite make sense. But it is a good show. So, yeah, I think 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10 uh, is, is deserved for, for what the show is. Um, and I did like it, and I did enjoy it. I would have enjoyed it a lot more if they had somebody else playing Lucifer, because Gwendolyn Christie is a great actress, but she's just not... She's just not who Lucifer is supposed to be. Um, yeah, I contrast that with the... I forget which network did it, but there was a silly network show... Uh, Lucifer, and they just got a really handsome, suave guy to play exactly the kind of slime ball you think uh, would be the devil in, you know, early aughts 2000. Same character. Same character. Yeah. That Lucifer, that guy is playing the same Lucifer that shows up in the Sandman. Oh, I didn't even know that that was a comics adaptation. Yep. DC Comics, uh, this Lucifer gets out of hell and starts wandering the earth. Fun, huh? <laughs> huh. Well, uh, yeah, that was a that was a good casting choice because they did get uh, an impossibly handsome man who could pull off the, you know, the uh, the charming yet skeevy uh, vibe uh, that you would expect for that character. So, yeah, uh, definitely a bad idea on the casting. Um, but you said, now this is what I, I, I want to get. Uh, so you say it's a good show, but I'm still not clear on what you get out of it. 
because you said that the horror was toned down. So what is the show like? What's it about? What's it what's it providing? What kind of story? Right now, the horror, the show is a, a quest show. Um, it's a quest for Dream to get his power and governorship back after everything was taken from him because of he's been captured. Dream. I'm saying death. I mean dream. Um, so it's a quest for him to uh, once again become the king of the dreaming. In more than just name only. So, you know, it very much hinges on you thinking that it, they very much lean on a sense of wonder and really manage to evoke it in a lot of places. It's really much, very much you depend depends on you for, um, depending on you f to feel empathy with dream for having been entrapped and and abused for so long uh, you know they murder his uh factotum the raven uh it's in it's uh someone who serves him in the form of a raven and you get a new raven later um Stephen Fry shows up in one point, and that was great. I mean, I don't know. What what do you get out of stories? Well, that's good. I just want to know what kind of story it was. If it wasn't, I mean, if the, if the original comic was a horror comic, and it went through, you know, dozens of uh, Dream Nightmare of the Week or Monster of the Week episodes, uh, what's this series about if it's not that? And I think you answered my question. The horror of the original comic is about what happens when the power of dream is stolen and misused against mortals, or what happens when a nightmare escapes the dream and comes to the real world, and what happens when it's literally walking among you. The worst things that you can imagine in a nightmare starts walking the earth for real, and when it starts, you know, hurting people. Um, they're all associated with, and, and Dream is there to keep control of those things. That's literally his, uh, literally his cosmic duty. Um, and it's all tied up in dreaming or what happens when you're a person who, uh, and this shows up in the TV series, it shows up in the comics, a dream vortex who breaks down all the walls between dreams and so that people start dreaming of each other they start dreaming in a communal dream everybody shares their dreams and so they start walking back and forth in between each other's dreams uh, and then that spreads to the whole planet um, but this threatens the existence of everything and what do you do to that person and that person's completely innocent they haven't done anything but just by their very existence by something they can't control they're literally going to destroy the world what do you do how do you control that 
what is justifiable to do. Um, I mean, all these things are horrors that are related to the dreaming. You know, someone has the power of dream, but has misused it to where they can now control the real world and force people to do whatever they want. But, you know, they're completely insane. They're basically a serial killer. And now they've stolen all the power of dream and can use it across the whole world. Again, much more harrowing in the comic than in the series, but it's there. Got it. So, yeah. Sounds good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did. I did enjoy it. I, my, the things I didn't enjoy about it are things that people who know the comic and love the comic will probably find aggravating. Um, but people who are new to it, uh, who've never read the comic will probably find it in an eight or so. I found it a seven or so. So that's my, I just couldn't get over some of the decisions they made. Cool. And uh, we're out of time, so we don't have time to talk about the other thing we we're going to talk about, but that's fine. We talked about AD&D and today's topic, and that's 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 the mark we want to hit. Uh, I hope everybody really enjoyed uh, listening in, um, and it was cool to hang out with everybody in the chat. Uh, and I hope that uh, everybody listening later really enjoyed uh, War Pig's review on Sandman. Um, but I don't have anything else to talk about for today. No. Nope. All right, T-Dubs, thanks for being the uh, most amazing uh, host, co-host ever. I'm done for this week. I'm going to make you talk more because it's the end of the show. That's your job. Oh, my brain is fried from all that talking. <laughs> I talked myself out. I almost talked myself into a coma. Ah, But no, that was good. Um Depending on who you are and what you're okay with, I would recommend uh, the original Hellblazer series. Um, fun fact, it was originally going to be called Hellraiser until Clive Barker's movie came out, and they had to scramble for a new title at the last minute right before it went to press. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hellblazer, Hellraiser would be a much better uh, name for John Constantine's book. Yeah. Um, I really do like... Uh, the Hellraiser, Hellblazer. Well, I like the Hellraiser movies, and I like the Hellblazer comic. Um, and uh, I really do like the Sandman comic. Um, and it is great to see a story play out over 80 or 100 issues of a comic, and then you don't realize it until the end, except for me. I'm giving you the spoilers. Um, it is. It turns out to have all been little parts of a big, big story that comes together at the end. Uh, and that is well worth seeing. Um, and uh, that's it. I want to thank everybody who uh, listened live and participated in the chat. I want to thank everybody who will who listened later. I don't even want to thank everybody who listened live and didn't participate in the chat. 
Um, just listening is is awesome, awesome enough. Um, you too can listen live on youtube.com slash geekgab, youtube.com slash geekgab. We are here just about every week, just about this same time, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Or you can catch us uh, any other time at the same place on YouTube because they archive these. And uh, we've got, what episode was this? I didn't even check. 289. 289. Wow, we're mere 11 episodes away from our 300th. That's, that's unreal. I never even expected we would get up to near that high. What the um, best. We have, do we have a guest coming on next week? Is that what I remember? I think you're just making it up as you go along. No, we're making up. No, we do not have a guest coming on next week. Okay. Well, we'll see what we're doing for next week sometime, some other time. Um, and uh, for those of you who want to catch us, we are also available on the Google Play Store, on SoundCloud.com, and on the iTunes Store, just do a search for Geek Gab. You can find us on the. You can listen to us on the device of your choice, on the web, or download us to your computer. And uh, we're signing off for today, folks. But don't you worry, don't you fret. We will be back.